Today we're going to take a break from our, our message that we've been preaching now for a few months out of, out of uh, Matthew's Gospel. Today we're going to focus on the Christmas message, and we're going to turn from Matthew's Gospel to John's Gospel, as Pastor Brenton just read. We're going to approach Christmas a little differently. Uh, obviously, Christmas is all about angels and shepherds, it's about uh, wise men, it's about a star, it's about Bethlehem, it's about a baby lying you know, in, in, in a manger and swaddling clothes, it's all of that. And today we're going to look at, at the Christmas story without all those physical, historical points. It's no less the Christmas message. Don't think I've lost, you know, gone off the rails or anything here. This is the Christmas message. In fact, this message coming from the Gospel of John is probably the most profound, greatest truth about Christ and about Christmas that we could ever share or tell. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No other act of God in the entire Bible is greater than that singular act that God literally became flesh. By the way, of all Christmas carols and songs, the greatest four lines that I think uh, exist uh, regarding uh, the greatest doctrine about God are found right in the song we sang this morning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where it says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That is a profound truth that's been given to us. So for this Sunday and next, our focus is going to be to unpack Emmanuel, God with us. And today's message is the Word became flesh. And let's look through the first 14 verses of John that we just read. For some historical perspective on John, those of you who like to take notes, those little Bible students in our church, let me just tell you this, that it was written... It was the last of the Gospels that was written. It was written towards the close of the first century, uh, written by John for the purpose of convincing people that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, they might have life in his name. Uh, John reveals his intended purpose. If you want to write this down as a, just a passage to remember about the Gospel of John, it's the summation of the whole Gospel of John. It would be, chapter 20 verse 30 and 31 let me read it for you it says now jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name so there is a definite purpose uh, in god's mind as he had john write this book and because this book written by John, focuses on Christ and him being the centerpiece, it is the best book to share with somebody who's not a believer. If you're ever uh, sharing Christ and somebody says, well, I've never read the Bible or I've tried to read it, I don't understand it, you want to say, start with the Gospel of John. They're going to read right out of the gate what you and I are going to study this morning so that when they come to you, you're going to be able to give answers to them about what they're reading, okay? So this is a powerful book. It's, it's a gospel 
that was written at a time when false concepts and heresies existed about Jesus Christ towards the end of the first century. Each gospel writer, by the way, you know this, they each start at a different beginning point in their gospel story. Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus going all the way uh, back to Abraham. Mark begins at the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Luke began with the announcement of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus. John's gospel is most unique. This is why we're focusing on John's gospel this morning in the Christmas season because of the great significance of his Christmas message. And here it is. John's gospel is most unique because he begins his gospel by going all the way back to the very beginning of what we know as time. And then going back beyond that, before there was time and space. I'm not talking about beginning in Genesis, because that's creation, right? No, no, I'm talking about prior to creation. John tells us about God. And so that's what we're focused on this morning. You know, Genesis says, in the beginning, God created. But God existed long before he created. You know that, right? And so John goes back to the infinite, eternal past, and he declares these words, beginning at verse 1. Look again. In the beginning was the Word. The beginning was not creating. The beginning was the Word, capital W. Word in the Greek is logos, L-O-G-O-S, if you want to write that down. It's a very important word. The Greeks had developed a philosophy articulated by Plato and others that was built upon the assumption that the logos, the word, was the foundation of everything on earth. The earth was simply a shadow of the reality of the logos that existed somewhere in the heavens. They did not give it a name, and they did not give it a personality. They did not think it was a personality. It was a force, some special force that existed in the heavens. The idea was that before something existed, there had to be a thought behind that existence. And so that's how far the Greeks took it, was if there is this logos, it's somewhere out there, and uh, it was the thought that brought forth the material thing, the physical thing, the existence of the earth, the existence of the things on the earth. Well, the Jews took the Greek concept of logos a step further. Whereas Plato said behind everything there's this perfect thought, this logos, the Jews said that behind the perfect thought there had to be a perfect thinker. And so the Greeks said we don't see perfection here on earth, it must exist somewhere else. Okay? The Hebrews added yes, and if that's true, perfect, uh, perfect thought, logos, must also be a true perfect thinker. So John bursts into the middle of this discussion between Jew and Greek, and he says this, in the beginning was the logos, the word, God, but not in a philosophy form. He is an absolute personality. He is Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the logos, the perfection, and the thinker in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So the Bible plainly says in the beginning, God, or as John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How can you be with God and, and be God? Because it's three in one, that's why. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. This is a powerful declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's so plain and straightforward that even a child can comprehend it, can be saved. Isn't that wonderful? God didn't make it so that only those who go get a degree, study Latin, Greek, you know, Aramaic, and, and uh, Hebrew could understand the Bible. To misinterpret this passage, you would have to be a Jehovah Witness, quite honestly. And that's exactly what the Jehovah Witness did. They inserted an A in the first verse of the Gospel of John. They said, and the word was a God, not God. He was a God. This doesn't exist in the original text. What they've done is add to. Why? Because that fits better their heretical teaching. But if you take the Bible in its original context, it is absolutely infallible. It is without error in the original transcripts. And so therefore we hold on to that and we don't change a single dot or tittle. He was, the, he was in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So here John starts his gospel looking before creation into the eternity past. And giving us this picture of God who existed, who was perfect. And, and then he says in verse 3, finally in verse 3, he comes forward to the creation. And he says, all things were made through him. Through who? Through Jesus. Through God. The triune God, right? But through Christ. Because he's been talking about the word, capital W, who is Jesus Christ. And without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing exists in the universe that Jesus did not make. I, I find it interesting that John doesn't address the creation until verse 3. And the first two verses are describing what and how things existed prior to creation. And in the beginning, before there was anything, there was the Word. He was with God, He was God. And then he comes to this point where we begin to see that he, Jesus is the Creator. Creation. All things were made through Him, and without Him any, uh, was not anything made that was made. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God in the Hebrew in Genesis 1 is the word Elohim, Elohim, which is a plural form of God. The singular form of God is El, and throughout Scripture it refers to the Father. But when Elohim is used, it is a reference to the triune Godhead, one God existing in three persons. So in Genesis 1.26 it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness who was god talking to he was talking to his own divine counsel he was talking to father son and spirit let us make man in our image after our likeness now here in john 1 jesus is revealed as the creator of all things 
All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Paul gets in on this, and Paul, the apostle, as he's writing to the Colossians concerning the preeminence of Jesus Christ, he declares this in 1.16 of Colossians. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, which is what John said, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So you go back to John, and we see this beginning. You say, you say wait, okay, wait a minute, I'm not connecting the dots. How does this relate to Christmas? Well, we celebrate at Christmas the Christ child. Unfortunately, many of us never go below the surface of that. On the surface, it's a little baby born in a manger who's vulnerable to the world and to Satan, and somehow God provides and protects, and Jesus grows up to be, or little baby grows up to be Jesus, and Jesus does wonderful things. You got it all wrong. The story of Christmas is that God became a baby, yet remained God. He never gave up his Godhead. Even in baby form, he was still God. Christmas is so much bigger than a baby lying in a manger. Christmas is God finding a way to come into this world to be with us, to show us who he is so that we could have the light of life. It's a whole different picture here. Look at verse 4, if you will, in our text. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I, I, that's a difficult passage to understand. I think it's a poor rendering into the English language where I think the ESV is very, very good because it's a word-for-word -word translation. But here I think they leave it a little bit, uh, uh, there's a little guesswork left in it. Uh, so let me give you the NASB of that same passage, okay? In verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There's a little difference there. Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now that's a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. Here in John's Christmas story, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And here he is, the light of the world, shining in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it or they could not comprehend it. So verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That is not a reference to the writer of this gospel who was a, a follower of Christ, a disciple. This is a reference to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. God saved the last of the prophets for the New Testament. John the Baptist is the final prophet of God in the Bible. And twice, John the Baptist lays witness to the fact that Jesus is God. Write these down. John 1.15, listen what John, it says, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out. Here's what John the Baptist said of Jesus. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
And then John 1, 34, I don't know how anybody could ever say they don't understand how we as Christians connect Jesus to being more than a prophet. How could you call him God? Here's what John the Baptist, the final prophet of the Bible, had to say. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John 1.34. This is the Son of God, capital S. You and I are sons of God, daughters of God. We're the children of God, little s. Jesus is the Son of God. He's not created by God. He is God. He created. <laughs> Big difference. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Can you grasp that? Just as a VBF family and friends and visitors who are here today, can we please try to grasp Jesus, the light? He came to shine that light. That's what the Christmas story is, that God came to earth in the form of a man while still being God to shine the light into the darkness. He is not a light. He's the true light. He was in the world. We're already told that all things were made by him, and without him not anything was made that was made. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and yet the world knew him not, the one who came with the light, the world still did not recognize him. That is, it's speaking of the world of man. The world of man did not recognize him. I don't think that's necessarily true of uh, other aspects of nature. It's interesting that those who were possessed with evil spirits recognized him. They would cry out, what do you want of me, son of God? They knew who he was. The demonic spirits know who he is. Evidently, the winds and the waves know who he is, because as the boat was about to capsize with his disciples, he said, peace be still, and the waves and the wind obeyed him. They know who he is. The rocks evidently know who he is. As he was entering Jerusalem, the Pharisees were encouraging him to rebuke his disciples, and Jesus said to, to the Pharisees, in Luke 19:40, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones or the rocks will cry out. So even the inanimate objects know who Jesus is in this world. And then there's the little donkey that he rode on going into uh, Jerusalem. No man had ever ridden on that little donkey before, I'm sure. Who would ever choose to ride on a donkey? You're going to get but right you're not going to be on very long and he's not going to move on your terms he's going to move on his own terms why because donkeys are stubborn and yet this little donkey never threw jesus never bucked what he was doing very interesting to me it was only the darkened minds of man that failed to recognize jesus he was in the world the world was made by him and yet the world knew him not and to this day the world knows him not. G.K. Chesterton uh, had this to say. He wrote a poem about that little donkey that carried Jesus. Maybe he didn't know him after all. Maybe the donkey uh, was, just picked, was just running with his own ego. Uh, he, here's what he wrote. This is a cute little poem. When flashes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon, grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. A little donkey, you know. 
with monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things. The tattered outlaw of the earth, O ancient crooked will, starved, scourge, deride me, I am dumb. I keep my secret still. And here's the secret. Fools! For I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. I don't think that's accurate. I think the donkey knew who Jesus was. All of nature was created by Christ. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is a reference to the Jewish people. Jesus actually said, I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These were his own. He was their promised Messiah. But when he came to his own, their response was, like in Luke 19, 14 and other places, we have no king, we have Caesar. Or 19, 14, we don't want this man to reign over us. Just an outcry that's magnified by the entire world today. So he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This was to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy about Messiah, when found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, where it says, He was despised and rejected by men. And he was, as he came. That little baby lying in a manger even had to fight, even though it was too small to fight, but God provided through Joseph and Mary. He provided angels that would speak to them and move them around to keep Herod from finding the little Christ child. So from the time he was born until the time he went to the cross, he was rejected by this world. But then John announces a glorious piece of news in verse 12. But... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So here he is in the beginning with God, the creator of all things, coming to his creation and not being comprehended, not being understood, coming to his own and not being received, and yet all who did receive, who believed in his name, to them gave the right to to become children of God. The Son of God became a man in order that he might make each of us who believe in his name sons of God. Isn't that wonderful? That you and I are children of God because God came down from heaven, revealed himself to us so that we could be saved. But please understand salvation. John tries to be very careful here to not mislead people in what it means to believe, to receive and believe in Christ. He says, who were born not of blood. You cannot become, become a son of God through physical genealogy. I am not a son of God because my parents were Christians. My children are not Christians because I am a Christian. It's not of blood. It's something that goes beyond that. You can't inherit Christianity. The dynamic life as a child of God comes only by faith in Christ as Messiah, the Son of God. And then John says this in the second part of verse three, or verse 13, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not something that you can set your mind to and make happen. 
You can't say, by my own will, I'm going to live this new dynamic life. I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to walk out of the darkness and into the light. And I'm going to live a perfect self-sacrificing life. The life that Jesus lived, I'm going to live it. I, I I demand that I live it. And you'll never go to heaven. And you'll never be a child of God. You can't do it by the will of the mind or by the will of the flesh. And he goes further and says, nor of the will of man. It isn't by the diligent practice of some man-made religion or even the encouragement of others. It's not like you can become a child of God because the environment that you were raised in was conducive or favorable to it. You had supportive parents and friends, and that's why I'm a Christian today. I grew up in the church, and I heard the hymns, and I know all the songs, and therefore I'm saved. You're not. You can bust hell wide open with that historical background. Satan will make kindling wood out of you if you think for one second that somehow, by being associated with the church, that that makes you a Christian. you got a better chance of sitting in an oven and becoming a biscuit. <laughs> Nor of the will of man, but of God. He's very clear. How do we receive? How do we become saved? It's of God. The new birth can only come from God, born of God as a child of God. I was born once by blood, born once by the will of the flesh, and born once by the will of man. That was my physical birth. Everybody here can testify to their physical birth. But my spiritual birth doesn't take place that way. The spiritual birth has to come from God. And so I have been born again by the Spirit of God into new life. Praise God. It was not my work. It was not my doing. It was not my environment. It was not my will. It was simply God who found me in my mess and extended grace to me and saved me. Any true believer understands that message and that we all have the same story. God saved us out of a mess. In verse 14, the final verse, we're closing it down here, although this last verse is going to take several hours, but... uh, drink because I plan to go a lot longer. You didn't laugh as much that second time. (laughs) And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, of course, the greatest, most profound truth in the entire Bible, and it's the greatest and most profound, important point of the Christmas story. I'm glad we're here this morning. I'm glad we didn't just go into the birth narrative of Christ told by Mark or by by Luke and Matthew. I'm glad we're focusing on the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word. He was with God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. The divine, eternal Creator became flesh, and He dwelt among us. This tremendous downward expression of God coming from the realm of the infinite into the realm of the finite, from the realm of eternity into the realm of time and space. It's almost beyond what your mind and my mind can grasp. This is what we are celebrating this Christmas. This is the celebration of Christmas. In the midst of all the festivities, the lights, the food, the baked goods. We had leaders of the church over Friday night to our home. Man, 
some of that, those desserts and the or, even the hors d'oeuvres that some folks made. Wow. And I would be on a keto diet right now. <laughs> Except for the fact that on Thursday night, Earlene told me that she was making a pecan pie. And I said, I'm cheating on Friday. And I cheated. And I don't regret it. That pecan pie was marvelous. All of this good stuff goes on at Christmas. You know, families coming together. We had a church picnic yesterday, which, by the way, was wonderful. We had a little light drizzle and never felt a single tiny little drop because we were under the pavilion, a roof bigger than this one. And we had great fellowship and children playing games, and we had all kinds of games for adults and things going on, but mostly it was just people walking around and connecting and having fellowship. And then we ended the whole thing with about 20, 30 minutes of just singing worship songs together. That's all wonderful. It's part of the Christmas experience, is it not? But friends, if we don't get back to the foundation of the most profound truth that has ever been revealed in the entire Bible, then we've made a mockery of Christmas. That truth is God became flesh and he dwelt among us. John said the world did not receive him or his message. They failed to comprehend it. But to those who did receive as Messiah, the Son of God, coming in the form of a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, they became the children of God. Can you imagine as the years passed for the disciples upon deep reflection, as they looked back decades earlier, and they thought back on the fact that we walked with God we heard God's voice. We touched God. We ate with God. We ministered alongside God. God sent us out. Can you imagine? John reveals his amazement because he was one of the disciples. And he wrote in 1 John, chapter 1 verse 1 he said this that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was the with the father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You can just see John standing in awe and wonder of the experience that he had with God on this earth in human form. Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. Here's a great passage. Write it down if you would. John 14, 8 through 11. Lord, show us the Father. This is what Philip said to Jesus. Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? 
wait a minute. He said, show us the Father, not, not Jesus, the Son. And Jesus is saying, I am God, the triune God. When you see me, you're seeing the Father. The things that I do, I never do on my own initiative. Whatever I do, it's because the Father told me to do it. Whoever has seen me, listen, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do, not, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, it's his work. Believe me that I am the, in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe that, church. Believe that person, if you're here, that has never truly just surrendered your life to Christ. Believe this. And then Jesus said this to Philip, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, if you struggle with my words being enough, then believe on account of the work that I have been doing because the work I've been doing is the work of the Father. The things that he told me to do, that's what I've been doing. You have seen the Father through the work that I've been doing in front of you. In John 1, verse 18, just a little further down from what we're going to study today, Jesus said, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one's ever seen God, but I came from the right, right hand of the Father. I've seen God, I am God, and I'm with you. So therefore, you have seen God. In other words, do you want to know what God is like? You want to know the truth about God? Look at Jesus. Study him very carefully because he's the manifest God in flesh. For the word became flesh and dwelt among us in order that he might reveal the Father to man. Because man had developed such wrong concepts of God. Really, I mean, it's amazing today. God has been so maligned and lied against continually by Satan. Why, why don't you ever hear somebody say, well, Muhammad, that gummit Muhammad, hit your finger with a hammer. Buddha, that hurt. <laughs> Never hear that. It's always God. It's always Jesus. Even today, Satan continues his work so that people have all kinds of grotesque, false concepts concerning God. One of the most common phrases in profanity is that God would damn certain things or certain people. You hear it so often, as though God is just desiring to damn everything and everybody. Nothing could be further from the truth. Is God going to damn the lost in the end? Yes. But that's not his heart to do that. That's his justice being played out. 2 Peter 3.9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the heart of God. God spoke to Israel through the prophet and said in Ezekiel 33.11, He said, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So when somebody's using God's name and damning something or somebody, that's the opposite of God's heart. That's just the enemy trying to pervert. All that Satan can do, he can't create anything. All he can do is take what God created and try to invert it or pervert it. So the profanity that's used in the name of God is a perversion. 
He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that, that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. That's the heart of God. People only see God as fury and wrath and judgment and fire, when in reality, he also has a heart that yearns after you. He wants nothing more than to have a loving fellowship with you. The Bible is so misunderstood or misinterpreted. In the book of Genesis, when man first fell, remember that? He ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then God shows up in the garden in the cool of the day, and he calls out to Adam. He said, Adam, where are you? It's amazing how we have the words, but we don't have the voice or the tone of reflection, you know, the, the, the inflection that God used. We don't know the tone of his voice. And so what people who think God's nothing but this damning God, he's just out to hurt everybody and he's angry all the time and he's watching everything I do and he's marking everything down. They hear God when, he, when they read that, Adam, where are you? It's Adam, where are you? What have you done now? Good grief, man. I'm finished with this relationship thing. You'd be surprised. That's how people see God. They don't see him. If I read the whole of Scripture, the whole Scripture, you're going to get a clear picture of who God is. Wouldn't you agree? Because it is in Scripture that God gives self-disclosure. I don't have to guess anymore. God reveals himself in, the, in his word. Here's the picture. It's the picture of a father who is heartbroken. Adam, where are you? What have you done? only you knew what I had for you and you chose something that's going to lead to destruction you see the difference you can almost see you know the chest of God coming in and out taking deep breaths you can almost see the sobbing you can hear the cry of a heartbroken father to his son, his creation. And the same is true for you. When you and I are on our own thinking we can make it, we don't need God. It's the, it's the heartbreak of God because he doesn't plan for us to go to hell. He plans for us to go to heaven. And we're choosing hell over heaven. Isn't that what you see when Jesus is found weeping over Jerusalem in, John, in Luke 19, 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If only you had known that through me you could have peace, but you've rejected me. Look what he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You're blinded. Don't you understand that by rejecting me you have just opened the door for your own destruction? That's not an angry Jesus who's out to get even and vindicate himself. That's, that's Jesus who's heartbroken. There was a publisher of a newspaper who declared of himself in his paper that he was an agnostic. Every year, he would always take his family, his wife was a believer, and he would take his wife and kids They'd make their annual pilgrimage to the church building, or he would, and they would celebrate the Christmas Eve service. He did it because his kids would offer recitations and 
they participated in the program, and he just wanted to see his kids, and also because his wife wanted him to go, you know. Well, finally, when he made the announcement, I'm an agnostic, he then reasoned, it makes no sense for me to go, because if I go, I'm just a hypocrite, so I'm staying home. And his wife pleaded, please go. She could not dissuade him, and finally, uh, she took off with the kids in the night uh, on the way to the Christmas Eve service in a blizzard, and he decided to sit by the fire and grab a good book and cozy up in a nice chair. He started reading. When he heard a noise hitting the window, and he looked over, and it was a little bird who saw the warmth of a fire from a distance and couldn't get to it and kept hitting the window. And that went on for a few minutes, and finally he noticed the bird is injuring itself. And so he went outside and walked down to the barn, and he turned the light on in the barn and opened the big doors, and he went back up where the, in the area the bird was, and the bird's still hitting the window, and, and he's trying to wave the bird to the barn. At least you'll be away from the wind, the freezing wind. And then a thought came to him, if only I could be a bird for a few minutes and communicate, there is a place you can go and get out of the blizzard. And it hit him. That's why God became man. That was his hang-up. Why did God need to become man? Makes no sense to me. Now he gets it. The question is, do you get it? Have you understood? Have you come to a point of decision over the fact that God became man? Emmanuel, God with us. Through the Christmas story, he came. And he performed miracles. He showed us God so that we could believe in God. But also so he could identify with our suffering. Jesus understands what you're facing, what you're going through. Whatever you face, don't ever think that he doesn't get it. He was here. He suffered. He bled. He died. And he offers us, those who believe in his name, he offers us the opportunity to be the children of God. Let's all stand. Some of you might ask, well, what do I do to be saved? That's a great question. That's exactly what they asked on the day that Peter preached the first sermon in the church. And by the way, that day, 3,000 people got saved. What must I do to be saved? I'll tell you what it is. Repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to die for you and forgive you of your sins. Put your faith in him. Believe in him. And the Bible says you will receive salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So do it. You say, how do I, how do, I do it? Is it some physical thing that I do? I know some pastors will have people come forward and then they pray a prayer over them. Repeat the prayer after me. That's a work. That doesn't save anybody. It's not a work that saves you. God's doing the work, right? You just believe it from where you are right now. Just believe. Maybe close your eyes so that at least you block everything out around you 
and then have a moment and can confess your sin to God. I'm a sinner, and I repent. I turn. I don't want to follow that path any longer. I believe you're, you are the Son of God. You came in the flesh to reveal yourself to me, and I believe in you as my Savior and as my Lord. And friend, I'm telling you, quicker than the twinkling of an eye, you're saved. It happens. And when it happens, you and I, it could happen right, it's possibly already happened right next to you. You don't know it. But heaven knows it. In fact, Jesus, Jesus the Son of God, said this, when one sinner repents, heaven rejoices. So in heaven right now, woo! Frank Smith, one of our members, he and Jackie just moved to Texas to be close to family because Jackie and Frank are both facing difficult physical illnesses. Frank passed away a couple days ago. Some of you didn't know that. Many of you did. Frank Smith right now knows in this room who received Christ. And knowing Frank as I do, whoo! That's my church! He can't see us. He can't communicate with us. But the Bible says heaven rejoices. So God must have somebody up there making an announcement. <laughs> Pretty cool stuff, isn't it? Wow. Amen. I want to invite the prayer partners to come and Wear, wear their mask and just stand along the sides here up front. If you have prayer for any purpose, any reason, you're hurting, you're going through a difficult time, you've got a transition in your work, whatever it might be, for whatever reason, if you'll come and just stand with one of them, they'll be delighted to pray with you. Men and women, feel free to come, okay? Children, youth, anyone. We want to just be, we want to be a fellowship. We want to care for each other. All of you are called to be ministers, right? You know what a perfect picture for me and for the elders would be, because we're all pastors here, all the elders, would be to see before and after church little huddle groups of people praying. You're not even waiting for the service, and you're certainly not waiting for the end of the service. You're just doing it. You're just doing the stuff. You're doing the stuff. What stuff? The stuff Jesus did. Because God's given you the right to do it. You're a child of God, amen? So you minister. So whether you come up front and you receive ministry from one of these, or whether you just huddle up out there, let's just be the church as we close out our time. Amen? Father, thank you for your goodness and your love. And Lord, may we now be the church. May there be an afterglow on this place, having received the word of God, being strengthened and encouraged and edified in the word of god now may we minister to one another in jesus name and all god's people said amen, amen. god bless you